Pushing for more. Get on base at all costs. Take an extra base no matter who stood in the way. The bag, the plate, the baseline were his, and his alone. He was the American League's first homegrown star. Babe Ruth and his home run feats were larger than life and were a vital component of the Roaring Twenties. His style of baseball represented a new version. A single base or a single run became less significant when runs could be made in bunches with one swing. Ruth's outlook, if one is good, two are better, and if two are good, ten are better yet, applied unequivocally to everything he pursued. Christy Mathewson, a devout young man with a college background, seemed out of place in the unruly world of early 20th century baseball. He not only survived, but was ultimately worshipped by fans and teammates. His cunning matched his talent, and both were astounding. He was calm and calculating, pacing himself through games and studying batters to find their weaknesses. With a wholesome image, magnetic looks, and acute intelligence, he was a role model for the youth of the country and contributed to an increased respectability for baseball. With an effortless whip-like motion that unleashed blazing fastballs, Walter Johnson racked up incredible shutout and strikeout totals. His long arms had batters claiming they could almost hit Johnson's fingers with their bats on his follow-through. He was a self-effacing, compassionate man and was actually fearful of hurting someone with a pitch. For 21 years, Johnson graced the team of the nation's capital and the game of baseball. Hannes Wagner was a man who could win with his glove, his arm, his bat, or his head. He set new benchmarks for hitting, base running, and fielding. As a major leaguer, he played every position except catcher, and many who watched him said he would have been a Hall of Famer at any of them. Still regarded as the greatest shortstop in baseball history, Wagner earned tremendous recognition. But he was a humble, simple man who shied away from glorification. Between the first voting and the opening of the hall, seven more outstanding players joined the elite class. Knapp Lajoie, Tris Speaker, and Cy Young were elected in 1937, Grover Cleveland Alexander in 1938, and George Sizzler, Willie Keeler, and Eddie Collins in 1939. In addition, a centennial committee selected the most deserving builders of baseball and pre-20th century greats for enshrinement. June 12, 1939, was the day they were saluted for their accomplishments. Having completed his stamp-buying errand, Commissioner Landis joined other dignitaries on a platform in front of the museum door, while the Hall of Famers remained inside the building. At noon, a brass band played the national anthem, and Charles J. Chile Doyle, Wagner's friend, a Pittsburgh newspaper man, and president of the Baseball Writers Association of America, opened the festivities with a brief speech. Cooperstown Mayor Rowan D. Spraker followed Doyle to the podium for a few words, and then Landis stepped up and dedicated the shrine of sportsmanship to the entire nation. Take Me Out to the Ball Game played as the red, white, and blue ribbons that stretched across the doorway were cut, and the door was unlocked and opened. A drum roll accompanied the reading of a list of the 13 builders of baseball and 19th century players honored within. As the final name from this list was recited, the only surviving pioneer emerged from the doorway and approached the microphone. 76-year-old Connie Mack, 
the tall tactician, was no stranger to awards or public speaking. But he was visibly struck with emotion as he uttered, This is one of the most memorable days in the history of my days in baseball. The exclusive list of the twelve players to be enshrined was presented next, and Hans Wagner was the first name announced. Now sixty-five years old, with thinning white hair, Wagner carried a barrel chest, bursting through a suit that could not have fit him for at least a decade. His gnarled fingers were obviously not up to the task of knotting his tie. It had been said that his legs were so bowed he couldn't catch a pig in an alley, and even his baggy trousers could not disguise that fact as he ambled through the doorway onto the platform. In the folksy, casual manner that always connected him to ordinary fans, he told the crowd, "'When I was just a kid,' I said, "'I hope some day I'll be up there playing in this league.' And by chance, I did. I remember walking fourteen miles just to see Connie Mack play ball for Pittsburgh. But it was worth it." Pausing momentarily to gaze at the surroundings, he added with total seriousness, "'A nice, quiet town you have here. Reminds me of Sleepy Hollow.' The audience chuckled. Writer Ken Smith, in attendance that day, recalled, "'Instantly the lid was off the formal proceedings. The celebration was back in its homespun ice-cream-and-cake picnic atmosphere.' It was vintage Hannes Wagner. Each of the others took a turn expressing his pleasure and appreciation for the tribute. Commissioner Landis wrapped up the ceremony by proclaiming, I now declare the National Baseball Museum and the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York, home of baseball, open. The entire group assembled that afternoon at an overflowing double-day field, Cooperstown's little ballpark, for the day's primary event, the Cavalcade of Baseball. Recreations of mid-1800s style ball were performed in full regalia, and then it was time for the major leaguers. The National and American Leagues had rearranged their schedules, clearing two days to shine the sporting spotlight on the tiny New York village. In addition, each of the 16 major league teams sent two active players to the occasion as ambassadors, as well as to play a few exhibition innings. Some were stars, others were not. They were there to pay respect to baseball's past. The eleven living members of the new Hall of Fame were still center stage for the cavalcade. Of the eleven immortals, as they would be called, nine served on an esteemed board of strategy, while Hannes Wagner and the great second baseman Eddie Collins discarded their suits to don uniforms and manage the two squads. Like schoolchildren, the two retired ballplayers gripped a bat, alternating hand over hand to see who would have first selection for the choose-up game. Wagner's huge paw ended up on top, and he immediately headed for home plate with bat in hand. Challenging former moundsman Alexander to throw him a curve, Wagner called out to the crowd, Every time you get one of those things in your hand, you think you can hit. Alexander declined, responding, And every time I saw you with one, I thought you could hit too. Asked about the pace he expected from his men in the exhibition, Manager Wagner replied, I don't know about the other fellows, but I'm playing for keeps, to win. I'm not playing for marbles. It was the only way he knew to play, 
and it turned out to be the only way for the others as well. What began with hitters swinging at the first pitch, seemingly in a hurry to finish the scheduled three innings, turned into seven innings and an hour and forty minutes of Major League Baseball. Though no one placed much importance on the outcome, Wagner did get his victory. Ironically, it was a Pittsburgh Pirate shortstop of a later generation who was one of the game's heroes. Archie Vaughn, a Wagner favorite and future Hall of Famer, class of 1985, doubled and scored the tie-breaking run as the Wagners rallied for two runs in the sixth to beat the Collinses 4-2. to two. Wagner was in his glory all day long, expounding his same time-honored tales to anyone with an earshot. There was the one about the time he hit a home run into the smokestack of a locomotive, only to have the ball blown back in a cloud of black smoke and caught for an out. He also told of the time a fielder snagged his belt on a nail protruding from the outfield fence and dangled helplessly as Wagner circled the bases for an inside-the-park home run. Every story ended with Wagner's trademark. How about that? Perhaps no one enjoyed the day more than he did. Talking baseball, swapping memories and lies with his old friends, and even getting onto a ball field for a few hours. By that summer of 1939, Wagner was a balding, beer-drinking storyteller whose awkward frame struggled to carry his own weight. However, during his prime, he had epitomized the American hero, successful, steadfast, hard-working, and unpresumptuous. In Wagner's playing era, America was thinking on a grand scale. It was a country with a short history and a vast expanse. Powerful giants such as Andrew Carnegie, John D. Rockefeller, and Henry Ford walked the land.